Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Voices from 2020, an audio program powered by Stranova, exploring strategic reflections on our business present from the perspective of the future, and featuring your hosts, Bill Veltrup and Firehawk. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Voices from 2020. Welcome to the second podcast in the Voices from 2020 series. I'm Firehawk, and I'd like to help you get ready to travel to the year 2020. As many of you suspect, there are an infinite number of possible futures. Whether our collective future is wondrous or disastrous will be importantly influenced by the choices we make as human beings. Bill Veltrup and I are convinced that we as a species have been grossly underestimating our capacity to choose a future that works for all. We've decided to pursue a path forward that we hope will help us collectively envision and move toward an ideal future. To move towards wholeness, in other words. Well, here's what we've done so far. Our first stop was to petition the Guild for Evolutionary Time Travelers, GET, to become licensed to travel to an ideal year 2020. We had to go through rather extensive and intensive processes before we received our provisional license, but we got it. Brad Redderson learned about this achievement and in a typical burst of genius and generosity offered to have his Stranova site host a series of monthly podcasts with Bill and I interviewing selected players from an ideal year 2020. In the first Voices from 2020 podcast, Brad interviewed Bill and I. The big news revealed from that bit of time travel was that the greater San Francisco Bay Area will be hosting the 2020 Infinite Games. Stay tuned to this series to learn more. In this, the second Voices from 2020 podcast, we're going to be interviewing Gil Friend and Jeff Saperstein to see how their deep commitment to creating regional dashboards has played out in an ideal future. One of the most significant findings from our time traveling to an ideal 2020 has been the vital role played by what some people refer to as regional dashboards or metrics for wholeness. These media-friendly dashboards have been foundational to transformational work throughout the Greater Bay Area, and they make quite a story. On this trip to 2020, we're fortunate to be with the two infinite players who did much to pioneer and nurture the evolution of these regional dashboards in the Bay Area and beyond. Gilfriend and Jeff Saperstein 
have agreed to reminisce with us about their early pioneering work in developing and nurturing the generative feedback loops that eventually became common throughout our region and the world. Since you're listening to this podcast in 2006 time, I'll tell you just a bit about their work up to that time. I'll leave it to them to describe what happened next. As of 2006, Gil Friend was already one of this country's leading environmental management consultants. A real expert who combined theoretical sophistication with hands-on, in-the-trenches know-how. Even back in 2006, Gil looked to nature as teacher and working partner. As he put it, nature's ecosystem has spent 3.85 billion years building efficient, complex, adaptive, resilient systems. Why should companies reinvent the wheel when the R&D has already been done? Jeff Saperstein was already a prolific and influential author back in 2006, with his book Creating Regional Wealth in an Innovation Economy being most relevant to today's conversation. A masterful educator, Jeff is a well-respected marketing instructor, writer, and a global consultant to government, product and service companies, and NGOs. His passion is work and personal fulfillment in helping others to be successful through applications of education, business, and relationships. And now, let's travel together to the year 2020 and listen in to an interview with Gil Friend and Jeff Saperstein. What took place relative to metrics, relative to generative feedback mm -hmm. loops? back in 2006, 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. that helped us get the attention of leadership and to find it in their self-interest as governors and mayors mm -hmm. and CEOs in working to a different uh, measure of success. Mm -hmm. So it's what happened back then. How did, you, how did you all work together? We actually started to build regional dashboards. Mm. Um, we had each been talking about it in different ways, in slightly different senses, but with some common um, common anchorage in there. And so we, when we put these ideas together, we started talking together to businesses, business associations, government associations, nonprofits in the Bay Area. Uh, we started cross-fertilizing the ideas that we were talking about and looked for and finally found, in what was it, 2008, I think, support to actually prototype this thing in the Bay Area, not to the exclusion of other regions, but let's, you know, this is, Bay Area was then, was for 20 years before that, 30 years before that, 40 years before that, <laughs> and still is now a really vibrant source of innovation. So it was a great place to start. It had the technology to support the start. We started to pilot it. <clears throat> Didn't have every community join in at first, but as this thing became visible and people could see what it was doing, it started to take off. It actually became a kind of mini local tourist destinations, like, you know, p t people from towns that weren't playing in the game yet uh -huh. would go video conference or drive or walk or, you know, ha somehow get to another town to see what was going on there. Because it, it, was, it was the sort of thing that you couldn't just look, understand by pictures. You look at pictures, you saw a screen with stuff on it. And you saw people sitting around a screen, which looked like people watching, you know, a sitcom or watching a football game or watching anything else. But when you went there, it was a completely different experience of watching. This harkens back to McLuhan and the stuff that Jeff had, had, had talked about, about McLuhan's work. Because the, 
the experience of watching became an experience of watching and doing and interacting and talking and getting excited and inventing and interacting with what was on the screen because that became part of the capability. It was not just the reporting out of past results, but the simulation and play and experimentation with different alternatives. So people really started to get off on this as a game, as a recreational pursuit, a serious recreational pursuit. And those two things weren't at odds with each other. It was, it was, it was a game because it was enormous fun and very creative and exciting and competitive and you know, you get your juices going. But it was serious because it was about real life and things that people really cared about. So that's where we started. We started with that pilot in the Bay Area and, you know, started, we're really talking about it actively in 2006, the pilot on the ground in 2008. And then that enriched and other communities, as we sort of hoped and expected, came knocking on our doors and said, could we do this too? I think the other thing is, is that we each had experience with the private sector, the public sector, and the NGO or nonprofit sector, and we each felt comfortable with the kinds of dynamics in each of those sectors, recognizing that when you bring those sectors together, you can do very powerful things. Mm. And that, in a sense, we're both connectors. Mm -hmm. And by being connectors and multiplying our connectivity with each other, we can do much more than each of us separately. Right. And um, so much of the spirit of what we are doing is complementary. Mm -hmm. And by combining access and by combining our uh, methodologies and by in the interaction of listening and, and sharing, we were able to come up with something that we couldn't do by ourselves. Yeah. Before then, both of you, to some degree, relative to what's been true in the last 10 years or so, were voices in the wilderness, like swimming upstream with, with some of the messages that you had. But it was that, that the institution of that game, that mm -hmm. infinite game, mm -hmm. that really made the shift. Yeah. Wasn't it that pilot work, that demonstration, that prototype, wasn't it that that stimulated the development of uh, regional simulation so that you could begin to look at the relationship between decisions you might make within a corporation or within a government and say its effect on, on uh, carbon to the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did that transition happen? How did that flow out of your prototype? Well, it, it flowed out very naturally because when people would look at what were basically historical metrics, part of the conversation would be talking about, well, what can we do differently? How do we make this be better? Um, and people would ask questions like, well, what would happen if we did this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at first, at first that was basically a discussion. People would talk together about what would happen. I think this would happen. I think that would happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then we started to build, um, we'd start to collaboratively build simulations. We'd try to tease out people's mental maps of what the, what, the, um, what the relationships of elements and activities and cause and effect would be. What, you know, if you do this, what do you think happens? What's the chain of events that could come from that? Mm -hmm. What are the anticipated and unanticipated consequences that could be done from that. But because we were doing that in a di really diverse, multi-stakeholder conversation, different people would see different opportunities or different causes or different, conse different consequences of the trail of branching effects. 
And so somebody who may think something was a very good idea of we're going to do you know, a carbon tax at a local level, uh, somebody else might say, well, that's, I understand the reason that you're trying to do that. I understand the aspiration behind that, but here are some of the consequences you might not have anticipated. As we would start to lay out that, that web of relationships and cause and effect and get people to say, yeah, that sort of looks like what we think is true, we could then model it. Mm-hmm. using simple simulation technologies that would then let people sit there together and say, let's try some moves together. Mm-hmm. Let's try your move. Even if I think it might not work, let's try it and see what happens. Let's try your move and see what happens. Let's try combinations of moves. Okay, And then there'd be like another layer of meta-learning because people would try these moves and see what the model predicted. And somebody would say, you know, that just doesn't make sense. Let's go back into the guts of the model. I think, I think one of the really cool things that happened mm-hmm. is that as opposed to having... People in the nonprofit sector, people in the government sector, people in the universities, each doing their own thing. This provided a safe place for interaction and networking mm-hmm. so that people who were normally in different sectors that were at odds with one another for resources or in separate geographies at odds with one another in terms of their own jurisdiction had a safe place to network with one another to solve regional Mm-hmm. problems, to address transportation, to address education, to address health, none of which, or to address environment and green space, none of those can be done on a silo vertical mm-hmm. level. Right. And what this really did was enable the players to get together and for the legitimacy of, of the simulation to then be utilized in the actual decision-making. And, and that yep. was a wonderful thing to see. And several really interesting things happened. One is that you know, people actually came up with significantly better strategies that had much broader acceptance around the community than had ever been done before. Um, one of which is that communities started to compete with each other in a very healthy way to say, hey, we're, you know, we're eliminating carbon faster than you are. Isn't that cool? Or, or you've done a better job on... Uh, on building intellectual capacity in the high schools, and we have, what did you do to do that? So there'd be a competition that was generative in, in driving learning. Um, and the other, which we really didn't expect at first, we didn't anticipate at first, is that we saw that in the midst of these conversations, and people would be working on five or 10 or 20 year plans, the meeting would end, and two people who had never met each other before would go off to a bar and start a business together because they found an interconnection <laughs> they hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Or a new community projects would come out of it, or a project that had been waiting to be born for years, all of a sudden met the person who could fund it. And these things came out of the conversation. For us, it was an unanticipated side effect, but enormously rich. So what I'm hearing in what both of you are saying is, from my background, it would be a shift in the way that people were paying attention to social interaction. Mm -hmm. So... Say a little bit about how that shift came about. You know, people are meeting in these, you know, in this pilot project back in 2006. Um, people are meeting in these groups. How, you know, what was the, what were some of the stories about how the, you know, how did the, how did the people transcend the the social calcification that naturally happens in systems? Well, one of the great aha experiences that we had was not only the changing in looking at what metrics were important, but in the changing of the reward systems, that these individuals, when they came together, decided to push for. 
So, for example, instead of the schools, the, the local schools, getting paid in terms of how well their students tested on statewide or national exams, they actually demanded and worked with government so that they would be rewarded in terms of the nutritional uh, content of their schools and the health of their students or their ability of their students to work together collaboratively on projects or for our universities to not just be paid for per head, but how well we were preparing our students for the workforce. Those are things that the university on its own could never do, mm-hmm. nor could the corporations ever do, mm-hmm. nor could the government ever do. But it was in the collaboration in, in our workshop in 2015, I believe, where we got these people together and changed the metrics and changed the reward systems for how the institutions, because mm. individuals work within institutions, how the institutional change came about because we had entrepreneurial champions who came together and saw their linkages in a way that they couldn't do before. So part of what Gil and I have been able to be very, very proud of mm. is the change in the reward systems that came about as the result of metrics it came as the result of people coming together in the simulations that were put together. And all of which enabled a conversation about people talking about what it is they really wanted. Uh-huh. One of the questions we started asking back in 2003, I guess, uh, with people in business and in government and community was, what are you really here to do? Mm. Which is to say, what is it that you really want? What's your aspiration? What do you care about in your life? When you, when you look back, like we're looking back now, what do you want to see you've accomplished? Mm-hmm. When you look at that in the context of the universities, the schools, it you know it means people need to talk about well, what's it there for? What is it that you expect from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, you know, degrees, jobs, sure, but what else do you expect from that? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a very rich conversation with, as almost always in these, a lot of difference, a lot of difference in perspective, and a lot of commonality. Mm-hmm. And we learned to honor both of those. We learned that the differences were important and the commonality was important, but putting them all up together. In this really diverse group, let people find a over and over again remarkably innovative paths where they could take what they agreed on and create something new and honor the differences. Sometimes the honoring would be we're agreeing not to talk about that today. That was okay. Sometimes it would be that'll be the topic for the next meeting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the differences drove an innovation in the Mm -hmm. stuff they agreed upon right then. We could never predict that, but it was always. I think without exception, Jeff. Always surprising and rich. So we created a safe space for collaboration. So this started back with the, or this was triggered really by the, uh, the, the study for, for regional metrics, regional metrics for wholeness, creating a regional dashboard. And it was your grant, Jeff, yes. that, that started that. And the two of you began to get connected more and more. Uh, the real milestone point was the coming together, getting getting the metrics developed to a point where you were you actually had a regional dashboard, you actually had prototypes, and you were able to bring people together from the various sectors to look at a given situation that would be covered by those metrics. The, and we were able to do that quickly using the, the dashboarding tools that my company, Natural Logic, had built 
mm-hmm. for private clients, for, for individual companies and individual communities around, you know, kind of subsets of the metrics of interest. So that was part of the synergy. Was the Part of the synergy was, was that Jeff had a, the vision of the regional dashboards. I had had my own. I had some of the tool set. We had the inspirations from the, you know, 40 years of our careers before that that came together, yes, and exactly in the synergy of vision and capacity mm-hmm. and opportunity. And some of the work that I had done in the corporate sector where we, um, with the EMM group, working with companies uh, that are Fortune 100 companies that were looking at um, technology and process and metrics as it was applied on the global scale mm-hmm. by, mm-hmm. by companies that had recognized that they needed wholeness in order to uh, sustain uh, profitable growth. Okay. And if you look at why people do things, why, why did our system take? It was because people in government recognized that they had, if they wanted to be elected and they wanted to have success, they needed to be able to have measurements that were able to get them to where they needed to go in terms of the economic development of jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Universities needed to recognize, recognize that they needed wholeness in order to be able to get the kinds of grants or get the kinds of faculty or get the kinds of students that they wanted to do. So everybody was in it for themselves in terms of what their own particular interests were. It was the fact that we were able to combine these systems for metrics and wholeness from the uh, the corporate sector as well as, as some of the work that Gil had done so that we, were, we, we didn't start with a blank sheet of paper. We really had the best practices uh, globally that we were able to uh, apply regionally. But when you brought together and created the regional dashboard, then it felt, it seems to me like another major step was when you began to pull in the, the theorists, the technological folks, to construct the simulation, the relationship between cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And that process, if I heard you right, Gil, mm-hmm. when you were describing it, now that you had the foundation of the metrics, now and you had the vehicle of bringing people together around that, now you could begin to engage people to begin to speculate and theorize on what's the relationship between cause and effect. Yes, but let me clarify a couple of things. Good. We had we we had we didn't have the metrics. We had the metrics systems. Okay. Because what the metrics were would depend on who are the people having the conversation. Different things matter to different people. So what was really important was a tool that enabled people to say, what you got up there right now is not what's relevant to me. Here's what's relevant to me. Mm-hmm. And the other people see something they hadn't seen before, and the ahas start to happen. Mm-hmm. For, the, the key metric for us always had been when someone in the room says, wow, I never thought of it that way before. Bingo. So that's where we're getting payoff. That's when we know that these things mm-hmm. are working. So it was so. One, it was metric systems more than the specific metrics okay. themselves. There was there was a convergence and a consensus over time on what metrics people cared about, but there was always variation there. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to clarify, Bill, is that, um, and this was one of the fun parts of the thing, we didn't we didn't pull in experts. Mm-hmm. People were knocking on the door because this was fun. People wanted to play, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't the and it wasn't the experts that built the simulations. The experts were in the room. But it was always, the simulations were always the richest when it was a very diverse group of people with both different perspectives and backgrounds and really different levels of sophistication. Mm. Not just experts, but, you know, um, uh, uh, um, commuters and 
clerks and librarians and housewives and school children and executives and policemen, you know, all over the map, the diversity is where part of the wisdom lived. My friend Carol Moore was fond of saying back in those days, he said, none of us is as smart as all of us. Mm-hmm. And that was really true in what we saw. Mm. And that gets to the deeper wisdom of the collective good can only be addressed by the collective and not one agenda. Yeah. And by us not having an agenda was important because you have people who are in different sectors and in different jobs and it's it's coming in with territoriality of their own jurisdiction or their own particular sector. How much budget am I going to get in my department kind of thinking that had to be broken and had to be reconstructed to the collective. And I think part of the beauty of this is we didn't ignore the competition Mm -hmm. or the competitive aspect, Mm -hmm. but we utilized that as an energy to be able to make sure that everyone would win as opposed to a win-lose or a... a uh, we, we've seen the demise of major corporations and we've seen the demise of major industries because of the inability of worker management or the inability of government industry to work together. And that obviously the, the places that succeeded, and this is one of the critical factors. You can have all the metric systems and the metrics you want. If it's not being implemented somewhere and you're succeeding, it doesn't take. When it started to be implemented and projects were able to now be pointed to as this came out of the collective that actually worked, then you had people knocking on the door. So it's a very different kind of competition because you both had the focus on the common win-win goals that we were trying to achieve together. But within that, there was the race to see who could get there faster, who could do it better, uh, who could get the satisfaction and, you know, and, and, the, and, the, and the psychic rewards of getting there better. So speak a little bit about that entrepreneurial factor. Well, one of the things is, is that there are entrepreneurs in every sector and in every place, and that what has traditionally been missing is the environment and the safe place and the ability to unleash this creativity within the institutional framework or creating new institutional, new organizations, new meta-organizations that enable people in the university, in government, in nonprofits to actually fulfill in entrepreneurial enterprises without it being just a venture capitalist and just a startup. So taking that energy of the entrepreneurial spirit that is was very rooted in our region. So we had, we, 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 it was already in the culture. Yeah. But it wasn't ubiquitous and it wasn't enabled mm-hmm. in every sector and in every institution. So why couldn't the public school in any particular region get entrepreneurial champions to be rewarded for the health of the children who were in their school as part of their pay structure and reward system? And then you have a loop where we're not just looking at a very narrow definition of what our institution does and constricting people. So part of that entrepreneurial champion dynamic was unleashed, uh, which of course has been a model for other regions which are now looking at what we've done and and emulating it. Because it's everywhere. There was a wonderful example uh, back in the 1990s, a European hotel chain called Scandic Hotels, which was having some hard times financially. began working with a, an NGO called The Natural Step, which had a very sophisticated framework of looking at business and sustainability. Uh, Scandic Hotel Chain trained every single employee in the company in this framework, this way of thinking. Really, it's a way of asking different questions about mm-hmm. what you do, what you do. 
Um, and um, their suggestion boxes got blown out by the ideas that came in from the organization. They improved the quality of the hotel, uh, the, 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 um, the health and well-being of the rooms, and therefore the people who passed through the rooms. They turned the company around financially. And the executives told us that the richest, the richest source of ideas came from the chambermaids. Now, back then, in Europe, as in the United States, as in probably a lot of parts of the world, chambermaids in hotels were typically uneducated immigrant women from different cultures speaking different languages. They were typically somewhat, somewhat, they were typically disregarded uh, or disrespected, both by management and guests, considered kind of lowly. But these were the people who had the face to the customer, who saw what was going on at the point of contact, and once they were equipped with some new knowledge and some new questions to ask, they were a gold mine of creativity and innovation and enormous financial impact for the company. So that was an example of, of a lesson of the importance of diversity and inclusion, not only as a moral value, right. not like we should all be nice and love each other and bring together, which is certainly valid, but as a very practical value that in a very diverse world, really with increasing global commerce and interconnection with different cultures, we need broader mind to be able to understand what our options and pathways can be. Nice. And that leads us to the vehicle, which today is, is just an obvious no-brainer. In communities of practice back 2006, when we were doing it, we're just beginning mm. to get legitimacy as the greatest uh, opportunity to take people together, give them the time, give them the resources, and don't give them a lot of direction. Let them take the problems and let them look at diverse expertise come together and in a community of practice, come up with solutions, come up with their own metrics, come up with values that fits that community. And that's been a, a great leverage point in communities of practice, which <clears throat> are everywhere. Out of, out of the metrics work, out of the <laughs> yes, that yes. But you need in communities of practice metrics that help the community to define what does success look like. Once you do that and the community buys into those metrics that indeed are valid and can be fairly applied, then um, there's some terrific, terrific results. One of the things in, in the and, and, book and that I, I, I wrote back in, in 2006, where we looked at studied the Procter & Gamble system mm -hmm. of innovation, mm -hmm. they had as a strategic objective that 50% of their new products and their innovations were going to come from outside scientists, outside researchers. They mm -hmm. did a global effort where they had technology entrepreneurs uh, seeking out si labs and scientists from every every country and, and every sector. Uh, and we see today, you know, that most companies today are looking at innovation and uh, entrepreneurship as external stakeholders to their company as well as within. So we, we've seen a dramatic shift, which we've been able to also implement in the region. So we've seen, so we've seen new ways of working that are, that are tested against agreed-upon metrics uh -huh. that are reflections of shared values and aspirations. Yeah. That's how those things tied together. Yeah. The communities of practice that Jeff talked about were sometimes communities in a room together. There's sometimes communities far-flung around the planet, Internet-enabled. And so it really took people learning new ways of working in both of those realms of how to do this and how to do it well and how to really engage the creativity of all the players and focus on actual process and results. A lot of the work that you guys did around metrics, around bringing mm -hmm. folks together back in, you know, in the, in the uh, late aughts, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, has had a huge influence on the 2020 Infinite Games. So I'd like to hear the two of you just give us a little bit of a feel, let the people around the world get a little bit of a feel for what's, what's going to take place in late October of this year. We're, we're going to see what's happened. We're going to see, you know, on this now global, not regional dashboard. This is something Bucky Fuller talked about 60 years ago mm-hmm. in his geoscope idea in the mid-1960s. To have, we, we, we now, finally, after, what, 14 years of work, Jeff, at 2020, we have the ability to have a complete planetary dashboard able to look at any scale, any location, or in any items of interest, whether it's, you know, education or atmosphere or nutrition or sports capability, what have you. We can zoom in and out and let people spin that dial and see whatever they want. So we've got that as kind of the part of the game board. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can see and look at at through you know through uh, participant polling to see what's of interest to people. We can look at what those trends have been and then bring forward the stories of successes mm-hmm. from anywhere in the world of what enabled that trend to move this way in this region and this way in another region. We can see what the successes were. We can see where the breakdowns were. Some of them have been overcome. Some of them haven't been overcome yet. Some glaring problems are still with us, but we can see where they are and what's worked and what hasn't around that. So that's one thing that's going to happen is actually seeing, honoring success, identifying failures, renewing commitment to move through those. Uh, And the other is that there's going to be kind of a more, maybe people would think of this as a more game-like aspect, is that we're going to take some of those unresolved problems and have teams from around the world dive in and say, here's what we think we can do about them. We'll play those out in the simulations that have been built. Again, this echoes back to what Fuller was proposing back in the 60s, and we'll actually have um, you know, cooperative, competitive gaming to see who can come up with better solutions faster. Mm. How do we know they're better? Partly it's what the simulations will tell us. Partly it's what the participants from around the world will tell us mm-hmm. in how they vote, how they respond, what they're willing to drop money on the table for, what commitments companies and communities and governments and educational institutions and voluntary associations are prepared to step forward to do. So the games include story, and they include competition, mm-hmm. and they include breakthrough, and they include generation of new engagements and opportunities and programs that come out of them. We don't, unlike the old Olympic Games, we don't want to just have a great event and have a terrific finale with lots of fireworks and dancing and medals handed out and people go home. These games are designed so that people go home in collaborative action with people they've been working with before and with people they've never even met before from some part of the world maybe they never even heard of. And I think part of, of the beauty of, of participating in the games are the changes that happen for the individuals that are at play. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that the exposure to the thinking that is much broader than either one's discipline, one's industry, one's region, enables opportunities to emerge that can be followed up so that it's an ongoing activity. It has a lot of... Um, it, it, it's the beginning of a momentum that will, will will actually have a lot of reverberations subsequent to it. Yeah, the game the game actually transformed the player of the game. Mm-hmm. And, and think of the uh, incredible educational opportunities yeah. all over the world for our young people. Well, that's part of the run up to this is that there's right. you know, there's several years of curriculum feeding an activity around the world feeding into this. Mm-hmm. So the kid, you know, 
when we say everybody's a player, I mean everybody's a player. That means kids in school are players with full capability to offer ideas as significant as executives of companies. If they're good, if they work, if they play out. So the game, in essence, is developing entrepreneurs for wholeness in all cultures throughout the planet. Yes, yes, that means yes. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) You didn't didn't hear hear me (laughs) This isn't a movie. (laughs) We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.